Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Yusten, Nathan, and Alexa. To continue our exploration of Ukrainian communities around the world, this week we look towards South America and the history of Ukrainian settlements in Venezuela, Uruguay, Paraguay, Chile, Brazil, and Argentina. This and more on Zakhrdvanyu Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. This week, we thought we'd have a look at one of the lesser-known Ukrainian diasporas, that being Ukrainians living in South America. Currently, Ukrainian, there are Ukrainians residing in almost every nation in South America, with the two largest communities being located in Brazil and Argentina. Andrei, do you want to take us through some of the smaller Ukrainian diasporas in South America before we tackle the two big ones? Yeah, so we'll start off with Venezuela. There isn't uh, a big diaspora there, but there is still some notable people that were born or happened to be raised in Venezuela. Uh, one of them would be Leah Imber, and she was born in Ukraine in 1914. And since moving to Venezuela, she then became a prominent pediatrician, vice president of the United Nations Children's Fund, and the first woman in Venezuela to earn the degree of Doctor of Medical Sciences. So she was quite the high achiever in Venezuela. She also was the first female member of the board of the medical school of the federal district in Venezuela. So a lot of her work is focused on medicine and working with children. So she had a direct influence into the health of Venezuelans. And another prominent person is Stefania Fernandez Crope, and she was Miss Venezuela of 2008 and Miss Universe of 2009. It's pretty big. So how many Ukrainians live in Venezuela in today? There's an estimated population of around 10,000, with them mainly surrounding the city of Caracas, I believe it's called, which is along the Caribbean edge of Venezuela. Following along is Chile, which also has a small population of Ukrainians living there. The very first documented Ukrainian to have arrived in Chile was a famous Ukrainian opera singer called Solomia Krushalenska, and she was there for five months performing on multiple stages and theatres. Her performance in Chile was highly appreciated because of her beautiful voice, her physique, artistry, natural dictation, and pure timbre of the young singer. Later on, during after World War II, former or past soldiers and prisoners of war who did not want to return to the, uh, to the Soviet Union moved to Argentina. However, at the time, um, not much was known of, uh, of the Ukrainians that had moved to Argentina until after the 1990s, where a lot more Ukrainians began to arrive in Chile. So you're saying people would come to Argentina and then move on to Chile? No, the other way around, uh, moving from Chile to other places as well. Uh, okay. Though recently, since Ukraine has gained its, in- its independence, the embassy of, Ukra- of Ukraine in Chile was established, also sharing it with Argentina as well. 
since 2014, the Chilean-Ukrainian Integration Chamber was established and it was initiated by Chilean businessmen and Ukrainians living in Chile. And their main goal is to establish cooperation, economic and cultural, as well as ed educational ties with Ukraine. Yeah. So the two small diasporas that I explored were Ukrainians in Uruguay, and this is probably the smallest diaspora in South America. And in the 2011 census, guess how many Ukrainian, um, guess how many people in Uruguay declared Ukraine as their country of birth? 100,000? No, much 30,000? 70 people. Whoa, okay, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, according to, like, old census data and just general government records, um, Ukrainians did arrive in Uruguay in the 1920s, mainly from the regions of Bukovina and Zakarpatia. However, uh, due to the conditions of Uruguay, they've become quite assimilated into the community and not much is really known about their general diaspora activities. So I feel... It's one that's quite small and not very well known about, so it might be something to look into deeper in the future. Uh, the other one... That's pretty, uh, that's, that's pretty small, 70. I wonder if they're like one <laughs> community or it's just spread out. Well, there's a few thousand. There's like They reckon there's several thousand of Ukrainian descent living in Uruguay. That's just... Um, I don't think they can... The Uruguay census records cultural ethnicity in the same way that other countries do. Hmm. Okay. Like yeah, it could be. To how we usually compare in diaspora around second and third generation and even fourth generation. Yeah. Uh, the other one that I looked into besides one of the big ones was Ukrainians in Paraguay. And this one is a bit more established and kind of built along the lines that we would recognize. So they reckon there's about twenty to 40,000 Ukrainians living in Paraguay or people of Ukrainian descent. And a lot of them are uh, clustered around the city of Encarnacion, which borders the Argentine province of Misotos, which is the heartland or the former heartland of Ukrainian immigration to Argentina. And a lot of Ukrainians in, Argent in Paraguay work as farmers and cultivate rice, corn, wheat, and a sort of yeah, or flour, which I have never heard of before in my life. <laughs> And again, um, a lot of the immigrants to Paraguay come from Western Ukraine, from Volin, Polisia, Halachina, and Zakarpatia. Um, and they all immigrated usually before the First and Second World Wars. After the Second World War, there was only a few thousand that arrived, arrived as well as um, expats from the Ukrainian diaspora in China, particularly Manchuria, which I always find as an interesting story that isn't well known about in the Ukrainian diaspora. Um, however, due to the more rural nature of the Ukrainian diaspora in Paraguay, more many of the more educated um, displaced people that arrived would later go on to emigrate to Argentina or Canada or America where they had better job prospects. Nathan, do you want to take us through probably the biggest one, biggest Ukrainian diaspora in South America, Brazil? Yeah, so Brazil is the third largest Ukrainian community in the Americas, um, and it's also the third largest Ukrainian population outside of the former Soviet Union. Uh, this is only comes um, before or comes after Canada and the United States, which have larger ones. So um, how big do you think the Ukrainian community is, do you think it is in Brazil? A million people? 
no, so no 600,000 600, people. Oh, and okay. it's That's actually... pretty big. Yeah, it is. And it's considered... Well, it was originally the number one destination that um, Ukrainians would go to. Um, this is actually pre-World War One migration we're talking about. So... And I'll, I'll go into like the history of why everything changed because after Brazil, everything then swapped over and Ukrainians started to go to Canada. So when we're looking at the comparisons, then immigration tends to be um, earlier waves of immigration. And that's why a lot of the people that went there were poorer and more rural um, Ukrainians that, and they had a lot less um, organizational strength. And so they focused on more uh, like the church as their centers of their communities. So the people who came from Ukraine tended to come from the region, uh, the region of Halicina in the West. And a majority of these people who arrived came around the time of 1895. So the first Ukrainian settlers who arrived came in 1872. And then the largest wave came in what's called an era of uh, Brazilian fever. And so this was between 1895 and 1897, where more than uh, 20,000 small farmers and landless peasants from Halachina came over. Now, the reason this happened was the Brazilian government, they were interested in increasing European settlement, and they would often pay for the travel of uh, people from uh, parts of Ukraine. So that's how from parts of Europe. So that's how poorer members of society were able to come over into Brazil. So we can say that's, you know, it's a good thing. I mean, if people are struggling in Ukraine, why not come over to what was considered the new world at the time and, um, you know, give it a shot out in the, um, in the Americas. So they were given very similar to um, what we mentioned in, um, when we did the, uh, our Faith in the Diaspora series, and we're talking about how Ukrainians moved out into the prairies. In Brazil, they were given plots of uncleared land far away from civilization, and they weren't given any assistance. So unfortunately, what ended up happening was because the climate was so strange to them that a lot of Ukrainians actually um, succumbed to diseases because they had no medical assistance and they experienced many, many deaths out in what, you know, what was, um, you know, these frontier towns. So um, because of their suffering, it actually um, became well known back in Ukraine, even to the point where uh, famous Ukrainian poet Ivan Franko actually wrote a poem um, about the struggles of people in Brazil. So because of this exposure and the misfortunes that the people were experiencing, Brazil um, no longer became the primary uh, primary place that uh, Ukrainians wanted to immigrate to. And so Canada then became the main destination that they wanted to go to if they were coming to the Americas. Moving on from there, the last group of Ukrainians that then came to Brazil was in, uh, when I say last group, I'm talking about big wave, was between 1947 and 1951. And these were mostly people that were seeking asylum from the Soviet persecution, having actively paid part in Ukraine's you know, independence movement. So they were trying to flee the Soviet oppression that was happening. So that's a general overview of you know how Ukrainians ended up in Brazil. And, you know, I was a little shocked when it came to um, the numbers because whenever I think of uh, Ukrainians in South America, I instantly think of Argentina, but apparently Brazil was the number one destination first. So that was interesting. And it's fascinating when you say that, like the how long ago the uh, immigration started, which is, you know, really precedes even the Canadian immigration story by a significant amount of time. Uh, it's, yeah, you would expect... 
Like, it's fascinating to maybe we have to try and get someone on the show from Brazil just to get a bit more of an understanding of, you know, what that Ukrainian culture is really like. Because when you think about uh, places like Canada where there's been over 125 years of settlement, um, there's kind of like an almost like its own distinct culture like we talked about in that episode. Yeah, 100%. And given the fact that the um, they came so long ago, there's actually kind of, um, and I'll get into this a little bit later, kind of the culture of the Ukrainian diaspora in Brazil is, I wouldn't say kind of isolated, but it's kind of unique because it has um, developed in isolation from a lot of other diasporas and the um, other and, and Ukraina itself, because there has been no major major um, immigration to Brazil since you know the end of the Second World War. Whereas, like us in Australia, we've experienced a you know a second wave of um, migration that happened after the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, that didn't happen in Brazil. So um, I'll get into later some of the differences there. Um, but quickly, I'll jump to the uh, religion. So the strongest form of uh, religion in the Ukrainian community there is Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, where it has massive uh, land holdings, and it includes 230 churches, five monasteries, and they're all run by the Order of St. Basil the Great. So I thought that was amazing, given the fact like we have we have a lot of Ukrainians here, but um, 230 churches, straight away I started thinking of those old churches in the prairies and how, you know, the Ukrainians kind of just, they developed their own uh, religious practices um, and continued them on in the new countries where they came to. So I thought that was really good. Now, here's the part when I was talking about, um, with, it was when it comes to language. So although most Brazilians have lived there for now four or five generations, it's reported that very few have actually seen Ukraina. And they have preserved the language that was brought over back in the 1800s. So they've preserved their language and culture specifically in the rural um, state of Parana. I probably said that wrong. Just a note, I'm going to say a lot of words wrong. So apologies in advance, Brazilian people. Um, In the rural state of um, Parana, Um, This is largely due to um, the effects of the Ukrainian churches. So as I mentioned before, their community was mostly organized around the churches as opposed to any other, um, you know, Promade or um, any other organization like that. So because of the churches, that's how their community was kept together. And due to the isolation, Ukrainians of Brazil actually speak a 100-year-old form of the languages from Halachina or also known as Upper Nistarian. It's a Nistadian dialect. So, yeah, that I thought was pretty interesting. That It's kind of like a bit of a time capsule there. So if you wanted to experience yeah. what, like, Ukraine was like, the language was like 100 years ago or so, you can, yeah, go to Brazil. Arguably, um, you know, we're all a bit of time capsules, whether it's the different waves, but especially, I guess, most countries have that World War II migration mm. that's a bit of a time capsule for a Ukrainian uh, set of vocabulary that's probably considered pretty out of date today in Ukraine. So, yeah, I was looking up pictures of like these Ukrainian churches in Brazil. And if you look at them and you didn't know they were in Brazil, they look like your typical like like all wooden um, and like very ornate. And if, yeah, if you didn't know, like at the bottom that the picture says like taken in this town in Brazil, you'd think like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, a church in Ukraine. So they've done a very good job at recreating their um, like cultural homeland. For them, so I've never been to Ukraine, but those people who have been, um, what's your experience when it comes to like when you're speaking the Ukrainian you know versus what the people in Ukraine speak? 
me and Andre would probably be a bad example of it because our parents emigrated in the 90s. So the Ukrainian we learnt at home is was like would be quite close to what modern Ukrainian would be. It's only the slang that catches me out. What about you, Yustin? Yeah, it's it's probably just vocabulary is probably less uh, anglified, to be honest. So um, things like uh, airport, which is the modern word for airport, for even those who don't really understand Ukrainian, it's pretty obvious. Um, whereas, you know, our pa- grandparents would come and use the word Lutovishya. So I didn't hear the word airport in Ukrainian until I literally went to Ukraine. Um and Lutovish is probably more directly translated, I believe, as kind of like aerodrome. So it's more like an airfield rather than a you know, modern airport. <laughs> so that's one interesting example. Probably another is something like Mahazen versus Sklap. Um, there's, you know, a few words, you know, for Svatere and stuff like that that are a bit different. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's, there's quite a bit of vocabulary difference. And yeah, there's probably just a lot more modern anglified words now and technology descriptions and stuff that just you know like flash car for a flash drive or you know things that you know, obviously would never be even part of the vocabulary of those pioneers oh okay well that's something to look out for i guess when i get over there at some point <laughs> all right so last lastly for brazil um notable people so there's one notable person um her name is maria berushko and she was a school teacher who died saving her students in a school fire um, in Brazil. And there's the possibility that she will become an Orthodox saint or the first Orthodox saint in Latin America. So she was born, uh, she was of Ukrainian descent, born in 1959. And in 1986, the school she was working at caught fire and she refused the chance to leave the building. Instead, she decided to stay inside and she decided to assist her pupils in escaping she assisted in saving five children, but unfortunately, eight other children together with her died in the fire. So, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, they're in the process of, you know, seeing if she will um, become a saint. And then that would be you know, not only something good for Latin America, getting their first Orthodox saint, but it also highlight the impact that Ukrainians have had in South America as well. Yeah, and this brings us to the Ukrainian community in Argentina, probably the most famous of the diasporas from South America. And we can sort of thank the United States for the first bunch of Ukrainians that arrived in Argentina. And that was because they originally set out with the intention of settling in the US. However, difficulties with the United States Department of Immigration caused them to apply for entry into Argentina, which was granted. And therefore they arrived in the northernmost province of Argentina in Misiones and started to cultivate land. And at the time, the Argentinian government was handing out about 50 hectares of land to newly arrived settlers. And this sort of became a draw card as it did with Brazil, where, you know, all, um, all the Ukrainians in Halachina at the time lived on very small plots of land and therefore these large plots of land in mysterious far-off lands probably seemed quite enticing to them. So Argentina has gone through several waves of Ukrainian immigration. So you had the first lot before World War I, and um, they reckon about 10,000 people sort of emigrated during that time period. And then you had a very large emigration in between the two world wars from the 
parts of Ukraine that were occupied by Poland. And then again after World War II, and then again after Ukraine gained its independence, a small number of Ukrainians emigrated to Argentina. Now, what's interesting is, is that because there was such a large Ukrainian community in Argentina, the Soviet government tried to entice some of them back to the USSR. So, you know, they could bring their experience from Argentina and, you know, make the Soviet Union better. However, this experiment failed quite quickly and a lot of them tried to come back to Ukraine as soon as they could, um, though a few were forcibly prevented from leaving, which is a shame. Now, unlike in Brazil, the Ukrainian language has suffered more significantly in Argentina And this is due to Argentinian government policies in the 70s and 80s, which prevented anything but Spanish being broadcast over the radio and in print. And this kind of stifled a lot of Ukrainian development at the time. So Mm. today, whilst the Ukrainian community is active, it's more of a Spanish-based activity with a lot of cultural... um, activities such as Tansi and all that. However, there have been moves to regain knowledge of the language. And now moving on to faith. So like in Brazil, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is the most active in in Argentina with the vast majority belonging to um, to that faith with the Orthodox Church coming in a distant second of about 30% of Ukrainians in Argentina adhering to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Now, what's interesting is, though, is that Ukraine's first Greek Catholic priest actually came from Brazil. So he was sent there in 1908 by a Ukrainian metropolitan, Andriy Sheptetsky, because the faithful there were, for a long time, um, the Argentinian government prevented the Ukrainian church from sending out priests because they wanted to assimilate everyone into the Roman Catholic church. And so a lot of Ukrainians, despite them, wouldn't get their children baptized, wouldn't get married in Roman Catholic churches, and instead would create, um, they would build a Ukrainian church, but it would function without a priest. And so they'd come together for communal prayer. So I think that's quite powerful that, you know, faith was so important to them that they were willing to, in a sense, almost become outcasts for their faith. Yeah. Jumping onto that point, there is a um, part of a Catholic um, theology. I'm not sure if it's there in the Orthodox theology as well, but they say that Jesus is present in a group of, I can't remember the number if it's two or three people. That's when they consider uh, like Jesus is present there. So technically you can hold the communal prayers and stuff like that still count as like a form of mass. I don't. I have a feeling it would be the same in the Orthodox because it would be like a basic tenet of the faith. So yeah. Um, so to this day, the um, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is quite um, widespread. And like for example, we have nuns at our local church, and they're all from Argentina. So it shows you how powerful faith is in that part of the world. That we have nu- Ukrainian nuns from Argentina, which I think is quite cool. In fact, they're also from the Order of uh, Saint Basil. So yeah. It's all tied together, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, like I was saying, the the 1990s, along with Ukraine's independence, kind of saw that revival of ethnic consciousness among Ukrainian Argentinians, and that has sort of led a revival of the community. And as a fun fact, Argentina was the first Latin American country to recognize Ukraine on the 5th of December 1991, 
and Ukraine opened its embassy in Buenos Aires in 93, followed by Argentina opening, opening up its embassy in May in Kiev. So does that mean... Oh, that's the sorry, first in South America. Okay, because I know Canada South was America. first. Oh, wow. uh, I'd just like but, to add uh, one thing. Like Nathan mentioned before with the whole uh, difference in Halachina Ukrainian or like the diaspora Ukrainian before, uh, say, the 1900s to the Ukrainian now, there are a couple websites where you can actually see the difference in what was used and what is used now. So... Some uh, some of the words have been completely changed. Others have had only letters changed, for example, from E to E, and others have uh, changed the Naholos, which is intonation or what is it? Yeah, the accent. For example, one of them would, uh, was Shlyafrok, which is now Halat. Futro is now Hutro. Uh, yeah, so there is <laughs> big differences in, in some words, but then others are simply just a change in letters or accents so is shluff is shluff rock you know let me see if my ukraine's right that's the word my judo used to use for like a robe or something like that i believe well, that it's is halat, is, it's yeah. halat now isn't it andre yeah it's a, it's a type of clothing yeah it's a robe like robe yeah cool yeah the other one i know is like i was i was taught like ukrainian school to say alvto but i apparently it's mishena now so Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's pretty fascinating how, like, the slight variations um, in the language change. But I guess kind of like when – I don't know if you guys um, have seen, like, ABC um, on Facebook. Sometimes they'll put up videos of people from, like, the 60s and interviews they did on the streets from the 60s and 70s and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's fascinating when you see how differently people spoke back then, not just in terms of the, the, uh, the words they used – or the pronunciations, but even just their accents, they have more of like that British kind of um, uh, accent to it as opposed to like Australians now. Um, so I guess it's kind of the same thing. Like since our grandparents came over, I guess with me, since my, my grandparents came over in that period and there was that wave of Ukrainian immigration after the First World War um, in like from an Australian context, it's understandable that if like the English language in Australia has changed so much, um, you know, the language out in Ukraine would have changed and we're kind of like we mentioned in that bit of a time capsule where we're still talking as if it was, you know, 1960s or whatever. Yeah, and look, I think we, we talk about the words because that's probably a simple way to discuss it and it's very accessible to anyone who speaks a little bit of Ukrainian. But when we talk about, you know, accents and even the way sentences are structured and just in terms of vocabulary in general, whether it's more the kind of common, like not the very prevalent peasant style mother that was brought over uh, in the post-World War II and even the early turn of the century, uh, sorry, turn of the 20th century mother that came to potentially to Canada. A lot of that was not necessarily intellectuals and things like that. So the majority of people coming didn't have a lot of that more advanced vocabulary as well. So it's a complex thing when you talk about language. So today, the Ukrainian World Congress currently has three member states from South America. So they have Argentina, which is represented by the Ukrainian central representation in Argentina, Brazil by the Ukrainian Brazilian central representation, and Paraguay by the Ukrainian Cultural Association Prosvita of the Republic of Paraguay. So, yeah, so maybe one day there'll be more member states of the Ukrainian World Congress from South America, which would be cool. 
so yeah, another diaspora and probably one that we should visit again and, and maybe try and bring some people f- uh, who have historically come from that diaspora and even potentially interview those in the diaspora today uh, to learn a little bit more about what's different. But also what's clear from this discussion is that while there might be things that are different, that the dates might be different, the types of settlement, but ultimately at the end of the day, there's so much that seems to be shared in common with the entire Ukrainian diaspora, whether it be Ukrainian Catholic and Ukrainian Orthodox churches, language schools, youth organizations like Summon Plus or dance groups, uh, choirs and other artistic Ukrainian groups. We obviously have a very rich history uh, that we should be very proud of. In the news this week, Turkey's STM shipyard has laid down the first keel for Ukraine's Ada-class corvette order. Ukraine has ordered two Ada-class corvettes from Turkey to further bolster its naval power. Once the ship has been completed in Turkey, it will be transported to the Ukrainian city of Nikolaya, where it will be fitted with Ukrainian weapon systems. Authorities in Moscow have removed a statue that commemorates the friendship between the cities of Kiev and Moscow. The landmark was first installed in 2001. Since Russia's occupation of Crimea and the war in Donbass, the statue has been painted in blue and yellow on various occasions as a sign of support for Ukraine. Ukraine's Verkhovna Rada has passed a resolution calling on the world to not recognize the upcoming elections to the Russian Duma due to its occupation of Crimea and Sevastopol, as well as the ongoing war in Donbass. The resolution was supported by 318 deputies. The resolution also called for Ukraine's international partners to impose sanctions against Russia and its occupation administration in Crimea, which involves Ukrainian citizens and thus violates Ukraine's sovereignty. Back in 2014, after occupying Crimea, Russia forced all residents of the peninsula to obtain Russian citizenship. The Dutch court responsible for hearing the MH17 case has announced that it expects to hand down its decision in the second half of 2022. During the court proceedings, more than 90 family members of those killed in the MH17 crash will have a chance to address the court. Back in 2014, Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 was shot down by Russian forces in eastern Ukraine using a book missile system. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more Ukulef Abroad content.